October 25th, 2012. The HMS Bounty, which was not the original Bounty, but constructed in 1962 for the film Mutiny on the Bounty and later featured in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. Set sail from New London, Connecticut down to St. Petersburg, Florida as Hurricane Sandy was quickly approaching the East Coast. As they were sailing out of port, Captain Walbridge posted the following message to the ship's Facebook account. A ship is safer at sea than in port. A ship is safer at sea than it is in port. Unfortunately, Walbridge was wrong. Dead wrong. His confident hopes of a brisk voyage down to Florida were quickly dashed as the HMS Bounty encountered three days of 70-mile-an-hour winds and 30-foot seas. On the evening of the third day, October 28th, Captain Walbridge finally requested some assistance from the U.S. Coast Guard. Shortly thereafter, the Bounty lost electrical power and one of the crew activated the ship's EPIRB device so the Coast Guard could find them in the blackness of the storm. Early that morning, still in the dark and in the storm, the crew tried to board their life rafts in the early morning hours, and the ship was broadsided by a massive wave that catapulted everybody into the sea long before the helicopters arrived. In the end, 14 out of the 16 members were rescued by the Coast Guard. Among the dead were Captain Walbridge and Claudine Christian the newest member of the crew. What do we see in this account? And we see it also in our text today. Not every storm in life is an act of divine judgment. It's not like the book of Jonah. Every time a storm comes, somebody has to have done something wrong for it to be occurring. In many cases, storms are just storms. We're never told why they come. We're not told why they finally leave. They're here. And they they impact people who are honestly trying to do the right thing. Captain Walbridge, to get his his ship down to a safer port. Our captain in Acts chapter 27 today, which we're going to see, trying to get his ship to a safer port. They're trying to do the right thing. As we work our way through the text today, I think there's one truth that's going to be shining through the entire story. And it's this. Storms in life may come and go, but God will always keep his promises. This account today is not merely bracketed between verses 1 and the end of the chapter. It begins all the way back when God makes a promise to Paul that he's going to go to Rome and he's going to preach the gospel. So if you're taking notes today, I've organized the narrative under three simple, rather boring headers. Didn't have a lot of creativity, I guess. All aboard, all over, and all safe. And given the length, we won't be reading the entire text as we work it through this morning. So let's, let's begin at the top. As the chapter begins, what do we see? We see Paul is finally on his way to Rome. Festus has decided he's going to send Paul off to Rome. He hands him over to a centurion named Julius. Verse 1. 
But, but he's not alone. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing, is Paul is not making a solo trip. It's not just Julius and Paul traveling across. No, Paul is traveling with a group of people. First of all, he's traveling with a larger group of pr- prisoners. And, and most likely, these are prisoners who are destined to die in the Colosseum in Rome. They're not prisoners like Paul who are going to go appeal their case to Caesar. These people are cannon fodder for the games. So we've got a group of prisoners going along. But on the other hand, as we look at who's going along with Paul, Paul's not like the other prisoners because he is a Roman citizen. He actually receives an honorary plus two for the voyage. He doesn't get one seat, he gets two additional seats. Luke and Aristarchus accompany him on the journey. So, so we see right at the gate that Paul is certainly a prisoner, but he's not treated like the other prisoners on the boat. And as the story progresses... He not only has a good relationship with Julius, but he has an opportunity to actually speak into events as they happen. Yet as we turn our attention to this 2,100-mile journey to Rome. That's what it is, 2,100 miles. It's nothing like the travels we have today. I mean, I mean, I mean military folks, they, you get your orders, you get a ticket, you know, somebody in human resources puts it together, you got your package, right? No, not for Julius. He's got to arrange every step of the journey, one port at a time, finding a ship to make the next stage of the journey. And it's not just for him and Paul, it's for him and all the convicts and his fellow soldiers. And to make matters worse, as the ships are traveling on, I mean, obviously they're not like the modern cruise ships that we have. They're not even close to to the, the, the passenger liners of the 18th and 19th centuries. I mean, they're they're very simple merchant vessels designed to carry cargo from one port to another. They're not designed for large groups of people. They're they're not comfortable living spaces. There's no big galley. And even worse, and one of the parts that plays very central into this entire account is, we're talking first century ships, they don't have the ability to tack. And if you don't know what that means, it just simply means they can't sail against the wind. They're at the mercy of whichever direction the wind is blowing. If it's not blowing in the right way, you can't sail. So, so that, that's a significant limitation. So I got a series of maps up here this morning to kind of walk you through because sometimes we start talking about places and names and we just start to kind of blur. Everything starts just like, like we, don't, we lose focus, we don't know where we're at anymore. So we're going to walk through this journey really quickly about the, the first stage. Paul begins his journey. He, he gets on a ship in Caesarea, travels up the coast to Sidon, and, and then we're told from Sidon they travel past the Lee of Cyprus. And, and Lee is just a nautical term to say it's out of the wind. Okay? The land is blocking the wind. They're not getting battered by it. They're in the Lee. And they travel up to Mira in Lycia. So first stage of the journey, we're already seeing something is there's a problem with the wind. This point, Julius the Centurion gets a ship that's large enough to make it all the way over to Italy, finds a grain freighter from Alexandria, Egypt, books passage, loads everybody on board. But the winds weren't favorable. 
relate season. They're blowing away from their intended destination. But, but with all the cargo on board, they're pushing. They want to make it to, to Italy to make their payday. So they, they, they keep pushing, they keep pushing. They make it to Crete into a port called Fairhavens on the south side. Unfortunately, now we're at this time where it's late October. When it says it's after the fast, it means it's after the Day of Atonement. This is a time when it is not good to be traveling across the Mediterranean. Everybody knew that. But they decide to take one final risk. And it's a reasonable risk because Fairhavens is really not that safe of a haven for winter. The pilot looks at it, the owner looks at it and says, this isn't a great place to be. And now often when we come to this stage of the journey, when Paul says, we shouldn't go any farther, in our minds we're thinking they're going to go travel another thousand miles. They want to go to Phoenix. You know how far Phoenix is? It's not Phoenix, Arizona. It's 40 miles up the coast. All they need, all they need is one to two days of just decent weather to get there. So so it's not this massive risk to make that final stage of the journey to Phoenix. I I want you to see this because sometimes we can read this account and think that they're making this crazy, selfish decision to keep pushing on. And really, they're looking out for the best interest of the ship and the people on board, trying to make it up to Phoenix. All they need is one to two days of decent weather. So the weather finally lays down They decide to make their break for Phoenix. And if we were watching a movie, this is the time when the music would change, right? (laughs) The pretty music as the blue sky comes up that morning. They set out of the harbor. The minor key music starts. And we know it's not going to go very good. In in, in fact, in Alaska, um, bush pilots have a term for this. It's called a sucker hole. It's, it means like, like you're going to go up, it's clear, and then you're going to get like weathered in and you're not going to be able to find your way down again. And, and that's what they end up in. Verse 13. Now when the south bend blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, it, it's the Greek word from which we get our English word typhoon, called the northeaster, struck down from land. In fact, let's, let's take a minute to put this tempestuous northeaster in context. It, it's, it's not merely a strong wind. It, it's, it's really this, this, this catastrophic weather event that occurred when the ice-cold winds would, would roll down Crete's Mount Ida, a mountain that's 8,000 feet tall. They'd cascade down into the warm ocean around the Mediterranean Sea. And they stir up these violent storms. And, and I know we got Navy people here. And, and I know we got people that have spent their life on boats and sailing. You, you, you know what they're talking about. This, this is brutal. I mean, I, I never was in the Navy. I, I've been on the sea for, for two months. I was a commercial fisherman in Alaska in my mid-20s for one season. And, and I know what it's like to be in over 20-foot seas. I, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be thrashed. I know what it's like to have green water. That is, that is like ocean roll over the bow, across the house, and across the rear deck. Not just spray. Also, I have to admit that I'm not one of those people that never get seasick. 
I know what it's like to be seasick for days. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. And these guys have it far worse. Far worse. In our passage. I mean, all we got to do is look at, start look down at verse 18 through 19. The, the crew is so afraid. What do they start to do? They're so afraid the ship's going to break apart. First thing they do is they bring in a lifeboat so it doesn't get torn away. Second thing, they start running ropes under the hole to lash the hole together. They're getting battered so hard they're worried the waves are going to break the ship apart. Number three, when it says they lowered the gear, the, the ESV note here notes it's most likely a sea anchor, which isn't like you think an anchor. It's like an underwater parachute. Slows down your drift. Because they don't want to be dashed onto the soles of Sirtis. And you know, you've probably read verse 27 a million, or chapter 27, verses 15 on before, and you're like, what is Sirtis? It's actually 350 miles away. It's off the coast of North Africa. That's what they're worried about doing. They're worried about getting blown down into these shoals in Sirtis, which in ancient world, they were, everybody was worried about ending up there. Ship's destroyed, you're lost, you're done. And they start jettisoning cargo. We get down to verse 20. Just kind of moving through this first part of the account. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. They don't have GPS. The only way they can navigate is by sun or stars. They can't see a thing. They don't know where they're at. Not a clue. No small tempest lay on us. The storm hasn't laid down. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now we start to get to the center of the story. Hope is abandoned. I mean, I mean, it doesn't get any more hopeless than this. We, we find out just a few verses later, it's been about two weeks. And some of you this morning might feel like you've gone through or maybe are in a storm that has beaten you up and caused you to lose your hope. See, see, the only thing that the people on this ship could count on is at some point in time, one of two things is going to happen. This ship is going to break in the storm or it's going to get thrown onto some rocks and either way, they are going to drown in the middle of the ocean. They've lost all hope. In fact, in verse 20, the, the, look at the pronoun there, our. Luke, the writer of Acts, is saying, I lost my hope. I'm, I'm, I was pretty sure I was going to die. So let's just stop here for a moment. Because there's some people out there in the broader Christian world who'd like to promise you that nothing bad will ever happen to you if you follow Jesus. Not, nothing bad will ever happen to you if you simply have enough faith. Say things like, God loves his children so much he would never let them suffer. But as we've seen going through the book of Acts, that is not an accurate portrayal of the Christian life. It's not accurate. The Bible's clear. Following Jesus does not shield us from the trials of life. 
It, it simply doesn't. We face disappointments. We face tragedies. We face sicknesses and crises unexpectedly crash into our life from out of nowhere. And it's not, uh, it's not always that we're in the middle of sin. It's sometimes we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to honor God. We, th- we think we're following and doing what he wants us to do. And everything blows up. In fact, this has really been Paul's experience throughout the last six chapters of Acts. He's not only been wrong in, wrongfully imprisoned and left to rot in a Roman cell, And now that he's finally out and he's sailing towards Rome, the final place where he can actually get exonerated before Caesar himself by somebody else's actions, he's on a ship that's headed headed to a wreck. He has no control over where he's at at the moment. He's at the mercy of the bad decisions of the people around him. So you see, the storms that come into our life aren't always a result of what we're, we're doing. It's not this, this instant, you know, like, like do one thing, something else happens. But the story here is to remind us that there is always more going on than meets the eye in our life and in Paul's life. Just think back to Acts chapter 23, roughly three years before. Paul was almost murdered right outside the temple. Jesus appears to him in prison and says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What, what, what promise does Paul have operative in his life in this moment? God's made him a promise that he is going to proclaim the gospel in Rome. And no doubt, through this entire journey, it's given Paul hope because he knows, he knows that God always keeps his promises. God doesn't give a promise and pull it back. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he won't do it? Has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? That's important. Paul has a promise. But here's the rub. God's promises don't always include the details between now and when the promise is received. Right? We don't get the details of the journey in between. See, if you're with us today and you've come to faith in Christ, that, that, that is you've recognized your best deeds your best deeds on your greatest day are not good enough to overcome the depth of your sin. And as a result of that, you've embraced Jesus' promise to forgive and to forgo- and forever restore every person 
who turns from their sin and believes in him, you have a promise and you can be certain. Number one, your sins are forgiven. You've been forever credited with the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then on account of that and that alone, not your works, not your church going, whatever kind of other religious things you do, you'll experience everlasting joy either after your death or when Christ returns. You can experience that instead, instead of everlasting judgment. It's a promise. Titus 3, starting verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We, we, didn't, we didn't finally measure up in God's sight, no, no. But by the washing, but, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, as Christians, we have a number of promises, but there is an ultimate promise and an ultimate destination that all of us have. No question about it, but, but, but the thing is, is as we go through God's word, it reminds us that that journey is going to be a mixed bag. High seas and tranquil bays, sleepless nights and cozy naps, tremendous pain and stunning peace. Christian life involves both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is probably one of the most honest pictures of the normal Christian life. Honest picture of the normal Christian life. Hope rises out of the ashes. Not because we're strong or smart. But because God fulfills his promises. And he holds us. And in the case of Acts chapter 27, the development in this story isn't merely that God promised to deliver Paul to Rome and got Paul to Rome. That's part of the larger frame. But what happens in the middle of the sea? What goes on is that we find out that Paul receives a promise not just for himself, but for the 276 people on board starting in verse 21. Since then they've been without food for a long time. Now, Now without food could be, well, it's really hard to cook. Without food is also probably, they're just all plain seasick and they can't eat. Paul stood up among them and said, Man, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Really, no loss of life. But only the ship, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly 
as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now, I, I, want, I want to make it really clear. Paul is not simply saying, see, I told you so. Okay? Because it kind of sounds like that when he opens up. He told him not to go. And it reminds him he told him not to go. But he's saying, hey, despite, despite your poor choices, God has promised to deliver everyone on board from death. Yeah, yeah the ship's going to be lost. So, so it, like, this is going to be a difficult rescue. It's going to be a hard thing. But everybody's going to be saved. Yet as I was studying this week, something really hit me in the text. Look at verse 24. The language in verse 24 suggests that God, the granting that God is doing here, is in direct response to Paul's prayer for the safekeeping of all. Notice it says God is granted to you. He's granted to you. This tells us something about Paul in the middle of the storm. All hope was lost of the 276 people minus one. Paul has hope in the storm. He's praying. But he hasn't just been praying for himself. Now I just want you to think about it. Like, like what happens when you're getting crushed in life? What happens when you're in the middle of a storm, you can't see straight, and it feels like everything else up is blowing up, everything is blowing up around you, and you're losing hope? Normally when that happens, we start losing vision of anybody else who's around us and we, we, this little spotlight comes and focuses on our life, on us. But that's not Paul. He's been interceding for the entire ship's company, just like Abraham interceded for the people of Sodom in Genesis chapter 18. He's praying for the whole ship. Like, like he has a promise about going to Rome and he's praying for the safety of the entire shipload of people. And it's great because he's, he's not even just playing, praying for himself and his two Christian buddies. Just think about who he's praying for here. He's praying for his Roman overlords. You know those people who, who conquered Israel and rule over it with an iron fist? He's praying for them, the soldiers on board. He, he's praying for the, the idol-worshipping pagans. He's praying for everybody on board. And, and I think he's doing this because he realizes, he realizes that they are human beings that are destined to one of two eternal realities. See, he doesn't fall into an every man for himself mentality. He doesn't. He continued to care about everyone's safety around him, even though most of them wanted nothing to do with Christianity.
Let's pick up with Paul's concern in verse 33 as the day was about to dawn. Paul urged them all to take some food saying today is the 14th day that you've had to continue in suspense and without food having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength. Now listen to this promise. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And notice the response. Then they were all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. There were in all 276 persons on the ship. Now there's a saying that rolls around various churches probably every church it goes something like this that person is so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good right so heavenly minded they're no earthly good well for everything we can see about Paul that statement is entirely not true it's not true. I mean, what we see in this passage with Paul is that we see practical Christianity at its finest. As we read through Acts, is there any more, anybody more focused on the gospel than Paul? Is there anybody who's more focused like a laser beam on what God wants to accomplish on this earth? No. Now, this is a man who truly lived by the mantra when he says, I want to know nothing. I want to know nothing except Jesus Christ. I want to know nothing but him crucified. Even more, what did he say his aim was? To join in Jesus in the midst of his sufferings. I, I mean, if there's a description of being heavenly minded, that's it. And yet here in Acts chapter 27, the person that is most heavenly minded is concerned with the lives and the empty stomachs and the encouragement of the 276 people on board. In fact, even though it's not a main point in this passage, I think we could rightly say that it's the people who treasure Christ above all things that are most aware of the practical needs of the people around them. Treasuring Christ doesn't blind us to the people around us. It actually helps us see them with his eyes. That's what Paul sees. But that leads us to the question, what is, what is the main point of this story? Of all the relatively little amount of information we have from the first three decades of the early church, why does Luke bother writing this entire account in, verse, in chapter 27? Well, I believe it's because Luke wants to see that we have a promise-keeping God. He always keeps his promises, whether that be to deliver Paul to Rome or to save every single person on the ship. Picking up in, in verse 39. Now the next day, when they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore... So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes they tied the rudders, that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they rang the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. And just in case you were wondering if the storm was still really that bad, the answer is yes, it was. 
Because the stern was being broken up by the surf. Like it's, it's, it's chopping away the stern of the ship. It's, it's, it's boards everywhere. The soldier's plans was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it to land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. Here's the key. And so it was. They were all brought safely to land. And that is on the island of Malta. I think we got that map up there. God fulfilled his promise. This this is why I believe the main idea of Acts 27 is this, is that storms of life may come and go, but God will always keep his promises. But I think as we look at this, and we look at this in light of the gospel, and we want to apply this to our Christian lives, we've got to recognize that the function of Paul's promise, his promise to make it to Rome, even, even the promise to get everybody on shore is a lesser promise than the promises that we receive in the gospel. It's a lesser promise. But this brings us to the question. What are the kinds of things that God has promised? What are the things that God has promised? I mean, if we confine ourselves just to the book of Acts, we can ask the question, what has God promised to all people, everywhere, under every circumstances? I mean, that would be, that would be everybody. I mean, especially if you're not a Christian. Well, what does the book of Acts promise? Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Promises of God we can take to the bank. We can believe. They're open. It's available. It's there. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Not not just from a, a temporary storm in our life. Not just from, from, from difficulty here or there that happens to in, in our lives. But no, what's the promise? Is that we got, we got salvation from the eternal lake of fire at God's judgment. A promise. A promise for all. And it's greater than the promise of physical safety. It's greater than the promise of prosperity. Because it's a promise that goes on forever. I mean, if you're with us and you haven't come to faith in Christ, this promise is here and it's waiting, it's available for you. All you have to do, all you have to do is respond. As we turn to Christians, what kind of promises have we seen in the book of Acts? We've seen the promises that that you and I have been forgiven. Forgiven of every single sin that we have committed, will ever commit. We've been promised that we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just live around us. God doesn't just know about us. No, God lives within us. Present and active and today. He promises, things have been talked about significantly in the book of Acts, that one day you and I are going to receive a resurrected body. 
And that one day, hear this, every act of injustice that's ever been committed against you is going to meet the justice of God. Every act of injustice that's ever been committed against you is going to meet the justice of God. If it came at the hands of a believer, that justice was meted out in God's justice on his son on the cross. If it's at the hands of an unbeliever, that justice will be meted out for eternity in the lake of fire. And what does that that do? As Christians, it frees us. It frees us from being trapped and enslaved to bitterness and unforgiveness that just destroys our lives. Ruins our effectiveness as Christians. It's a promise. It frees us. God will right every wrong. It's a far greater promise. And why is God going to fulfill every promise that he's given us? These just a few. It's because as Paul writes in the book of 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the guarantee that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. So let's turn to some application. I know in a church like ours, it's deeply committed to the inspiration and the authority of God's word. That our struggle really isn't normally that we don't know God's promises. We know. I I think our struggle that we have is that even though we're believers, we struggle with unbelief. I'm not talking about the kind of unbelief that, that, that somebody doesn't believe the gospel. I'm talking about believing what God has promised his people. It's unbelief. Even though we cognitively know what God has said he will do, we can go to chapter and verse. We can point it out. We've gone through 10-week Bible studies. We've talked about the promises. We know the promises. They, 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 they never really make it down into our hearts because we don't really embrace them. And on account of this persistent unbelief, we tend to struggle with confidence and hope when we face the trials and the storms in our lives. So how do we believe these promises? How, how do we embrace them? How do we appropriate them so that they can provide us with that sturdy ballast and deep keel that we need in the storm-tossed reality of everyday lives? How do we take what we know to be true and live it like it's true? Well, I believe Paul points us to two truths. Two things in the text that really help us get there. Let's go back all the way to verse 22 through 25. 
Paul speaking to the ship says, Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life amongst you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Two keys. Paul understands who he belongs to. He belongs to God. Secondly, he doesn't just belong to God, he has faith that God will do exactly what he said he will do. Let's just take a moment as we're closing to to highlight these two points. Number one, when Paul says, I belong to God. It leads us to the question, how in the world? How in the world did Paul endure all the trials, all the pain, and all the persecution that he endured throughout his gospel ministry? I mean, in Paul, we have a person whose, whose entire life is dedicated to seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ, open up new frontiers in the gospel, to build churches, grow disciples. His singular goal is to make Christ known. But what does he face? Difficulty after difficulty and after difficulty. And after being in prison for for almost three years. I mean, mean, how, how do you just keep from walking away? Like, God, look at everything I've done for you and this is where I end up? And if it wasn't when he was in prison, I mean, easily on board ship. We look at our experiences and think they're a reflection that God has abandoned us or he's not dedicated to us or he's not fulfilling his promises. Paul's like, no, I belong to God. See, Paul persevered through all of this because his heart was anchored on the truth that he belonged to God. And who is this God that it belongs to? The God who's always been, who created all things, who knows all things, and who ordains all things for his glory. But we can't stop there. Because if we only stop with the sovereignty of God, it can feel like this this hand of merciless fate. But who is the God that we have revealed in his word? Infinitely good. Infinitely loving merciful and a God who is forever committed to us in Jesus Christ. We have infinite sovereignty and goodness. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 38, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation we'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, I think this is where we often struggle. We can believe that God is sovereign. We can believe that he saved us in Christ. But I think often where we struggle the most is to believe that God truly loves us that he's not just kind of holding us out like a stinky sock. 
He truly loves us. And he's working for our best. Number two. As Paul says, I have faith that God, that it'll be exactly as God, pardon me, I have faith in God that it'll be exactly as I've been told. When God's promises come to pass, they don't come to pass accidentally. They don't come to pass haphazardly. They don't come to pass belatedly. But intentionally and perfectly every single time. God's not early and he's never late. And we need to believe this just as much as we need to believe that God truly loves us in Christ because our life is filled with unexpected storms. Storms like physical injuries, storms like disabilities, debilitating diseases, cancer or other diseases, financial difficulties, rebellious children's broken relationships in our family, with our adult kids, with our parents. Storms of unexpected deaths. Parents, children, or a spouse. We don't, we don't know when they're going to come. And they come. And they come with ferocity. And the truth of the matter is every single one of these storms threaten to crush our hope and to sink our trust in God when they come. And they do it while at the very same moment we are convinced that we are going to spend eternity with him. See, often the question that we have isn't about our eternal state. It's about his dedication to us in the now. See, God doesn't promise to rescue us from every storm that we encounter in our life. He simply doesn't. But he has promised that each and every storm, every trial that we face between here and heaven will be exactly what we need to grow and to, meet, and, and, and to mature and to become all that God wants us to be in Jesus Christ. Notice it's not about judgment. Every storm isn't about judgment. James chapter one, starting verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Is there anybody more steadfast than we see than Paul? Is there anybody who's had more trials that we've seen than Paul? Produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. So if you're here today and you're feeling storm-tossed, beat down, seasick, these 
two key truths are something we need to commit to memory. I belong to God and I believe that it'll be exactly as I've been told. Because it's when we hold on to these two key truths that we can have hope in the middle of any and every storm that we face. Storms in life may come and go. But we have a God who will always keep his promises to us. Let's close in order of prayer.